Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Welcome everyone to Deep Drinks Podcast. What made the Jesus movement tick? What new perspectives can be gained by situating the life of Jesus of Nazareth in the turbulent troubles of first century Palestine? My guest today has done that in his new book, Jesus, A Life in Class Conflict. Dr. Robert J. Miles is a New Testament scholar from Ontario, New Zealand. He's currently the senior lecturer at um, in New Testament and Director of Research at Wellston Theological College, a college of the University of Divinity. Prior to he, uh, this, he lectured full-time at the University of Auckland and Murdoch University. His writing focuses on the historical format formation of the early Jesus movement and the socio-economical realities of first-century Palestine. He, have published, uh, he has published widely on historical Jesus studies, gospel studies, particularly Matthew, and the ideological uh, context of contemporary New Testament scholarship. It is my honor to welcome Dr. Robert Miles to Deep Drinks Podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's, it's such a privilege to be here. Well, uh, I think it's a privilege for you to be on, especially because of the drink that you chose. And uh, I, I have a confession to make before we kind of announce that, and that is... Um, most of my uh, most of my drink has sadly deceased, has sadly evaporated since going on the shelf of, <laughs> of my uh, whiskey collection. I had yeah. to have a taste before I bought it a couple of weeks ago, and uh, yeah. yeah, what what are we drinking today? <laughs> today, David, I'm sharing with you the gospel. <laughs> this is the gospel. Um, it's it's a Melbourne-based uh, a, a whiskey from from this brewed in Melbourne, um, Australia. Uh, it's absolutely delicious. It's a rye-based whiskey. Um, I with this one, like normally I drink my whiskey neat, but with this one I tend to have it on ice. Um, yeah, I I got some just, ice because yeah, it just takes the edge off a little bit. Um, Sometimes the uh, sometimes the I find sometimes ice and water can actually like um, uh, expand the flavors. So I got mine ready as well. Um, and I was just saying that um, I've got Dungeons and Dragons after this, which is a great way to start an academic conversation. I play Dungeons and Dragons with some friends online, and my character is a drunken dwarf, and I like to method act whenever I can. So. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to doing that after Getting after prepared. some of my whiskey. I just just <laughs> when I took a sip of that, you, do you know the Simpsons? And when Barney, when Barney and Homer are going to space, and like Barney, they're training, and Barney um takes a sip, one sip of the drink, and then he goes, it begins. I just had that exact <laughs> feeling when I just took a sip of that. It was so That's delicious. Like <laughs> it is. It's, it truly is. Hey, pragmatic yeah. crystal. It's nice to see you up at this time. Uh, we we don't know, we, we won't probably get a lot of live viewers because this is a an Australian time zone tonight. Everyone's probably asleep, but um, I'm sure everyone will watch it um, later. So um, so one thing I wanted to quickly touch on before we get into your scholarship is you kind of mentioned uh, that you're from um, a you use the Aboriginal naming of the region that you're currently in, um, mm. and I think that was so cool. Like you put like you you're currently in Perth, Australia. But you, you say that you're in the, uh, and I don't, can you pronounce it for me? Wajak Noonga? Wajak Noonga. So um, I'm in the, the, the Wajak area or the Wajak clan of the Noongar nation. 
Um, yeah. So, you know, Australia prior to uh, uh, colonization, European colonization, um, there are a number of uh, Aboriginal nations, distinct Aboriginal nations with their own language groups and so on. And uh, where I am, which is now known as, as Perth um, in Western Australia and uh, down, down the kind of the south, um, the southwest coast, uh, this was uh, Noongar country uh, originally. Mm. Um, I mean, it still is, arguably, um, because sovereignty uh, of the land was never was never ceded; um, it was taken. Um, so, you know, I think it's 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 important to to just sort of acknowledge that. A hundred percent, and um, it's something that I realize for myself. I'm I'm uh, born in Australia. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Australia, and where I know more about the Middle East and the gods there than I know about any of the Aboriginal gods. Um, totally. I know more about the culture of Detroit than I know about, you know, I've never been to Detroit, but just somewhere in the United States than anywhere in Australia. And it was caught to me, I kind of realized, wow, that's a, that's a problem. Not only because the Aboriginal culture is massive and huge and, and diverse and, and all those things, but it's the oldest living culture in existence this is what Australian Aboriginal Australians have been here for at least 40 to 50,000 years, like or possibly by... longer. Yeah. As a content, as a continuous culture. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so... it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. And so as you, as you, I think you said I was from Ontario, New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. In the introduction, but uh, maybe you misread, um, Aotearoa, which is the, oh, the Maori name for, Oh, for... you're not from Ontario. Oh, sorry. <laughs> from New Zealand. So I, I'm from oh. New Zealand originally or from Aotearoa and I, um, uh, grew up there. <laughs> and, you know, bomb. we got, got a lot of, um, uh, learned a lot about, uh, the Maori indigenous, um, culture and, and history there. And then I moved to Australia um, for work, actually, uh, about six years ago, six and a half years ago, for a, a job at Murdoch University. And um, so is everyone. So is all New Zealanders. And, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> economic reasons. We're going to talk a bit more about economic uh, driving factors uh, <laughs> yeah. sooner or later. But um, yeah, and and in that time, you know, as I've realised that I just don't know enough about. Uh, um, Aboriginal uh, culture mm. and, and history and kind of the specific aspects of that, which are distinct from New Zealand's own colonial history and um, indigenous histories. So um, I'm on my own sort of journey to to um, learn about and and listen to uh, what I can in that in that area. Um, I think it's quite topical. It's always topical, but it's particularly topical at the moment because. Um, uh, you obviously will have heard about the voice to parliament that that um, there's going to be a referendum in Australia uh, later this year, which uh, asks the question as to whether Aboriginal people um, uh, uh, should, there should be a representative body um, that government uh, needs to go to, um, to consult, not necessarily to have, you know, this body won't have any um, Kind of actual power but is just a consultative body that the government needs to consult if it's to make laws that will affect aboriginal people um mm. and this is actually quite contentious uh i uh, i can't imagine anyone yeah. having an issue with that but apparently and yet and yet in the media <laughs> landscape we see that this is a contentious yeah. issue um and it's surprising and i think you know i think as i've lived here for six years now i realize my own ignorance about a lot of the stuff and so i mm. want to to learn more and to listen as well. 
Mm. Well, well, I think that, and, and the reason I kind of brought this up is because I had the kind of same realization and we just had, uh, we have a beautiful baby boy out. We, we did IVF and mm. had a, had him, uh, 12 weeks ago tomorrow or the next day, actually, I Congratulations. His mm. date of birth. Jeez, that's bad. But anyway, the point is, um, he's only young and I, one of the first things we bought for his room was this map that I found. Um, and it was because I realized I didn't know anything about Australia. So this, I was just going to show it here. So it's a map of australia but it has the first nations of australia so if you if i zoom in is that, is that see... in like a lord of the rings style or something yeah <laughs> and it's in the yeah, lord right. of the rings style. so so the guy <laughs> who created it he actually spent a year doing the research and um and like you can you can zoom oh, right in cool. and you can see um the gubby uh gubby 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 or gubby gubby region that's where i'm root sure and i think um yeah you can it's it's really cool like in over here yeah. uh yeah you just got all these different Different, yeah, like so if you go, just to think, if you can go down, you'll see. Um, oh, but the, I think I found it. Picture, I think I think I found it earlier today. It's uh, uh nope, that's not no. it. See, Australia is a big country for anyone who's never been here. It's massive, but you're lower, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're just yeah. yeah you can go. see Perth yeah. and uh, yeah. So watch and you up. can just yeah. I can't zoom in any further, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Um, but but yeah, that's that's the area that you're in. But it's like it's think about best, like yeah. a nation, a group of people, a language, a, a, a you know, a, 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 their own kind of culture within a bit larger culture. Each one of these names, and I know nothing about any of them. And it's like I yeah. want to change that. So I, I hung it on the wall of our of our son's um our room, and it's like you know that's like the first step. It's like no, we need to kind of learn about these cultures that we kind mm. of just that i just don't know anything about it's a real shame because it's not just for the kind of i'll say racist undertones of why we don't learn about them but also because it's interesting and there's so much to learn and you know so i just yeah. think that's um it's uh it, i really appreciate that you put that in your um uh, in, uh and, and about and about this environment just as a random uh aside a related aside but um one of the things that really interests me about when you look into like Aboriginal history and stuff is how a lot of the early settlers, colonists who were here and explorers were really reliant upon um, local indigenous groups for their like knowledge of the land. So, mm. you know, Western explorers would, would come here or colonists would come here and not be able to find water. Um, and yet Aboriginal people would, you know, they could read the landscape and the land and the, and know where, know how to survive. Um, yeah. And, um, and, you know, Australia is, is such an interesting and unique um, environment, and it's a harsh environment as well. Um, it's not an easy place to, you know, if you were stuck in, in, um, in the desert or something like that, <laughs> to actually survive and sustain yourself. And yet, as you say, you know, Aboriginal people were doing that for like tens of thousands of years successfully. Um, and mm. there was incredible, like, knowledge and skill that, um, was passed down from generation to generation and able to facilitate that. We we have something like because no, I, I researched this when I was I used to be a fundamentalist young earth creationist and I researched right. this when I was trying to work out is it plausible for animals to have hopped crawled and slithered and rolled all the way from Mount Ararat in Turkey to Australia. And I found, I, I did the research, I looked through textbooks. I mean, there's a funny question to kind of ask, right? But looking back, but um, there, I found that I, I, I didn't put in birds because birds could fly and I didn't put in fish because fish could swim. But uh, not not including those two, there are 19,000 endemic species to Australia, including plants. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, whoa, 
<laughs> it's like that's a lot. Like, why aren't there anywhere else? <laughs> and it's crazy because like a lot of there's native animals and 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 flora and on the west side, the western side of Australia where I am, which um, you don't find over east um, yeah. where you are, um, because there's a big desert in the middle. <laughs> which, which stuff couldn't survive, it's, you know. So things like kangaroos you get everywhere, but like koalas are only on the east coast. We don't have them over yeah. here. And then we've got some species that you don't find over there, and particularly the the, the plants as well. Uh, there's stuff mm -hmm. that's just in this region. It's really interesting. Just so, and and we will jump off this subject, even though I'm finding. It yeah, we're going to talk about but, Jesus. Uh, we'll talk about Jesus, but <laughs> I had a um, friend come over from Perth actually, and she came to Australia Zoo, which is down the road from us, and was working there and taking care of um taking care of the koalas. Um, her name's Kennedy, and she actually got a tattoo of one of the koalas that, you know, they, they essentially got, became humanized because it was never going back into the wild. It would come up and give her hugs every day and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, but um, what's serious, what's interesting is in that in that Noah video, I called up one of these nurses. It wasn't Kennedy. It was someone else who worked at Australia Zoo. And I said, what are the chances of a koala surviving on eucalyptus spray? And they're like, koalas are so dumb. They will choose to starve in a tree rather than to eat the, the, the species or, or type of gum leaf they don't want to eat. Like, if they can't find the exact gum leaf at the exact age of gum leaf, they'll just choose to starve to death. They'll, they'll literally just, like, I'm not eating that. <laughs> and and so, like, my Kennedy would go around with um, these um, these koalas, and they they, they call them, uh, they call it uh, a leaf shopping, where they, they someone brings in all these types of gum leaves, um, different ages, different, um, different, different um, cut from different parts of the tree, higher up and lower up. And they walk around with these injured uh, koalas and they they smell the leaves and go, no, I don't want that one. And they go to the next one, like, mm, no, I don't want that one. And they're just branches. And they finally find the one they want. They go, okay, you can have this one. They go, yes, I'll eat it. And it's like, it's amazing how fragile these things are for how um, how long they've survived. Yeah, Fussy, fussy, fussy eaters. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I guess on to Jesus. Uh, what is, so your book is um, is fascinating. And and I've, and uh, like, it's, uh, it's deceptively, uh, dense, like it's it's got a lot in there, uh, and of course you're the co-author uh, with James Crosley, but um, but it's just it's really dense, and it's uh, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, and I, I really wanted to kind of like get get to start this conversation by asking what is a materialist uh, Marxist understanding of Jesus, like how does it differ mm. from the traditional perspective? Obviously, mm. the traditional sp perspective being you know, Jesus was the son of God, like a theological perspective come, you know, in, in, but or come down from, you know, the heavens to save us and, and, and that. And there's also a probably more historical perspective, but particularly on material Marxist understanding, how does that differ from that? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing, just to clarify that we're, we're, we are in, engaged in like historical Jesus studies. So we're bringing a, a, what we call a historical materialist um, or as, you know, Marxist approach to the issue of the historical Jesus. So um, already, you know, historical Jesus research is a well-established sub-discipline um, or area of research where people write about uh, the, the human Jesus um, or the historical figure of Jesus using uh, uh, the, the, the methods of, um, his, historical criticism, right? So trying to reconstruct uh, the the historical figure who walked, talked, and, and breathed in first century Palestine. Um, and this has been going on for hundreds of years. People have been writing about this stuff. Um, um, and it, it tends to want to bracket out some of the supernatural claims or 
another way of looking at it is to look at the the supernatural claims within their historical context. So yeah. um, to say that Jesus was, you know, the son of God, well, that's we can explore that historically. We can say, well, yeah, there were early Christians who believed that Jesus was the son of God. And what did that mean within um, first century Palestine? What did that mean within mm. a Jewish context or a Greco-Roman context and so on and so forth? But but Jesus, we can't, hist historically, we can't say mm. Jesus was the son of God. That's a theological question, right? Not a yeah, historical the, question. I think the question of, of what that, that means for us now today is, is a kind of theological question. Um, mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, the fact that people uh, believed that he was the son of God you can investigate that historically. Do people believe he was the son of God or not? I would yeah. say that they did believe he was the son of God. They, you know, <laughs> they, they sincerely and vehemently believed that. And then we can we can explore historically what they what they understood by that claim, what they what they thought it meant within their context, which may or may not be quite different from how um, the Christian tradition has gone on to interpret those sorts of theological claims. Yeah. So that's mm. that's the first thing. And then onto the other aspect of your, your question, the what about this Marxist bit or the materialist bit? Mm. Well, um, often when when Marxism uh, gets mentioned in respect of um, Jesus and especially the historical Jesus, it's often uh, associated with a kind of romanticized lefty jesus who's a bit like a you know a first century che guevara uh, uh or something like that and um <laughs> that's i mean i i kind of like some of these reconstructions but they're not always the best um you know historical uh, uh scholarship as it were um they, they can be quite anachronistic which means you know they're, they're projecting modern understandings onto the ancient world and you know that can be fun and interesting but um we're trying to do something different by um, Marxism and historical materialism. We basically mean a couple of things. We're interested in class and class conflict um, and social and economic factors as the driving force or the engine of human history of, of uh, historical change. What brings about change for us? It's about a class conflict through history. Um, and, um, and I guess the other thing is that we, we, are wanting to understand historical phenomena, such as um, which includes you know religious phenomena. So these religious ideas and, and movements and so on, um, as a product of the social and economic conditions of their time and place. So um, everybody, wow. you know, everybody is uh, to a, to a large extent, you know, like conditioned by the and a product of the environment out of which they've emerged, right? Um, um, and ideas and uh, ideas kind of don't just fall from heaven, as it were, but rather they are generated out of a real existing material context. Whether consciously or not, people are always responding to uh, and interpreting their material environment um, uh, and all of the kind of the messiness that, that goes in, on, in with that. So, you know, related to this, there's there's also another thing that we're trying to turn on its head, which is the great man view of history. And uh, historical Jesus research has typically adopted this great man view of history, which is a really common way of doing history, which pretty much suggests that, you know, all of history can be summed up by 
the innovative genius um, of singular great men or individuals. They almost always happen to be men um, mm. through this, but it's, you know, like so-and-so had a great idea or a, a new innovation. And so he went in and changed the historical situation all by himself. And, you know, this view of, of history has been um, rightly criticized for a long time now, for centuries now, but um, it continues to persist. And um, we would we would say, in a, a long line of, of Marxist historians that um, great men, um, you know, uh, don't single-handedly change history all by themselves, but rather they are um, the products of the social and economic forces that were built both before and during their, their lifetimes. They may be, you know, they may become prominent and important conduits for um, particular movements and ideas, but the idea, but the, the, the assumption that, um, historical change itself happens due to the actions of singular great individuals. Uh, we would reject that assumption, um, this un this unfounded assumption. Um, and so we we want to very much look in the case of Jesus at uh, at what was the what were some of the material and the economic and and uh, social factors and conflicts at the time that that he lived um, that were affecting his life and other people. Um, his his associates and so on, and how were they interpreting those realities? How were they responding? Um, often they did so using uh, religious language, but they also used uh, religious language that was coded politically and economically as well. Yeah, I mean the 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 the, the um the beast in Revelations um, rings a bell uh, when you when you say that. Um, but the uh something something that I found interesting just recently was um. There's a campaign on on Kickstarter at the moment to try and add um, like advocate for more women in public spaces, like women's statues in public places. One point three percent of statues and bridges and things that are named or show show someone it's a one point three percent are women, <laughs> unless you yeah, include right. angels and then it moves up to like six percent, like f feminine creatures and things. But yeah, like think about that. Like think about like how even in today's society. You know, the majority of things are about these like men that changed history. It's like, well, there are women that changed history too. It's like, where are all the statues of them and the bridges of them? Yeah. And that's that's today. Think about you know, going going right back there. But the thing that I want to touch on with something that you said is that your book uh, is like it it totally it's like it's opened up a whole new can of worms for me because I was looking at the Jesus. I concept through a historical lens and lately yeah. we've had some debates on this channel about Jesus mythicism which and you know I'm, I'm trying to move away from that because that just seems to have me full of drama at the moment but um we're just you know just looking at Jesus from a historical perspective but I never considered putting Jesus in in his historical like spot. Yeah. Well, yeah, in his historical world, like I, I didn't envision the culture around him as much as I probably should have. To think about that, we have this Jesus movement that is that has gone on for 15, 20 years until the first writings we have about it. Uh, I, I watched your your amazing episode um, uh, with James on Derek's channel, uh, Myth Vision, mm -hmm. and and Derek kind of brought up the fact that um, I think he was talking to. Uh, Paula Fredrickson or, or one of uh, someone else. So I, might, I might be getting the names wrong, but how they were saying, you know, like Paul's already coming up with excuses 
for things for issues why the end times haven't come yeah yeah why haven't the end times in the 50s in the 50s yeah and that's how and that's how that's the earliest written um material that we have for this early jesus movement yeah it's it's wild and and just think like what were you know what what were these like these what was it like in palestine at the time or or, Mm. is that the correct terminology by the way first century palestine or is a a different um word yeah we can talk about palestine as the as the first century palestine as that as what the romans called it yeah okay cool um yeah so so i guess can you lead us down some of the sociological and historical context of palestine i guess we Mm. should do like before during and after jesus's ministry like is there is there a story to be told there or is it um i know that yeah i think i think kind of going back to what i said about the great man view or critiquing the great man view that (laughs) great men like say jesus um are but the products of the social conditions built both before and during their lifetime. So I think we do need to start before, um, or and in the book we we, we focus on uh, some of the, the the things that were happening in Galilee, which is the region of of uh, Palestine that he he grew up in as he was growing up, or slightly before and into his his childhood and as he was growing up, um, before uh, him and his his compatriots became. Um, uh, active, as it were, um, mm. publicly active. Um, so uh, this is so good, to, the, 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 I, know, this I know. <laughs> it's such a good whiskey. It really is. Like the, almost the whole bottle's gone. Like I just, it's so good. <laughs> I'm surprised you just didn't fill it with water or something just to pretend. <laughs> you know? No, no, no. I just, I, 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 I might have drunk it all and then told my wife, sorry, I, I got to get another one. I just, <laughs> it's my work, you know. I was, I was, yeah. Um, you know, um, so uh, as, um, I mean, yeah, I'm just thinking where to start. And I think the most important point to start is that uh, Palestine in the first century during the time of Jesus was under the direct or indirect, depending on what part you were looking at, uh, control of uh, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the most expansive um, and successful political entity in world history to date at that time. It was absolutely huge, uh, comprising a lot of Europe, you know, reaching into North Africa, um, and Palestine was, in a sense, on the margins of this empire. Um, And it was uh, being ruled at the time by... Uh, kind of puppet kings um, or locally uh, grown uh, kings selected from the the aristocracy. Uh, So Herod the Great, for example, um, who was in fact, uh, we know from elsewhere, was, you know, a friend friend to the Romans. Um, He was well liked by uh, the Roman uh, powers. And um, so he was appointed to to rule over this this kingdom of of, uh, Judea. Um, which included most of Palestine. Um, and then he dies in about 4 BCE. So uh, um, we'll get to when Jesus was born, but actually most scholars think that Jesus was born in about 4 BCE, not in zero. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, there's a bit of a miscalculation that happened there. But um, uh, And at that time that Herod the Great uh, dies, um, his kingdom is divided uh, among a number of his his sons, including another Herod that we read about in the Gospels, Herod Antipas. Um, this is the Herod who is con- is in control of Galilee, uh, the the region where Jesus is located and grows up. 
And um, uh, he's wanting to largely follow in the footsteps of, of what his father did. Now, what did his father do? Herod the Great, he initiated a number of massive building projects throughout Judea. So he created, uh, he founded a city on the coast called Caesarea Maritima, which um, uh, became the capital city of this region and, and connected um, the uh, connected Palestine into, you know, by a sea route into the uh, uh, the uh, broader Roman imperial economy. Um, he also built a number of fortresses and. Uh, um, and um, also initiated um, the um, the uh, this massive refurbishment of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, um, a refurbishment that continued uh, uh, after his um, his uh, uh, death in four BCE. So anyway, he, yeah, his kingdom gets divided upon his his death, and Antipas inherits this northern part, um, including Galilee. And Antipas uh, wants to continue um, the, this legacy that his father here at the Great had initiated. So he starts his own uh, building projects. Um, and there are two major building projects in Galilee during the uh, lifetime of Jesus that we know about, uh, both from archaeology and from um, ancient historical uh, writings, such as the writings of, of Josephus. Um, this includes both the rebuilding of Sepphoris and the founding of a city called Tiberias. Now, the uh, building of, of Sepphoris, um, uh, and Sepphoris, you know, is this, it was this massive urban project that was based, uh, that was founded, you know, I think about six kilometers from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. So it's right in that proximity of where uh, Jesus is, is located. And the city already existed, but it had actually been destroyed uh, in 4 BCE, following some turmoil and uprisings that were happening in response to Herod the Great's death. So Antipas has it um, rebuilt to the extent that uh, some ancient authors call it, you know, the ornament of all Galilee. It's it's heavily Romanized. Um, it's this place of kind of elite power and concentration of wealth and so on. And then um, uh, a few decades later, uh, around 19 CE, so just before the Jesus movement gets going, um, Antipas founds this city on the Sea of Galilee, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee called Tiberias. And th this is named after the Roman emperor at the time in honor or homage to the Roman emperor, the kind of the Roman power that lays behind Herod's power. And this city, um, uh, again, has, has a massive social and economic impact on uh, the entire region. So it's these historical events, and sorry, that was a long story kind of no, bringing you up to there, but right. these these are the events that, um, uh, and it's these building projects that, that we say in the book really transformed the social and material conditions um, in Galilee at the time. And um, uh, it really threw up a whole load of um, uh, upheavals and, and, and changes that uh, people felt, you know, felt that they needed to respond to. Um, yeah. Hmm. So at the time, and I'm, I'm very bad at history, I'm trying to, to learn more myself, but at the time where the Romans were kind of like, um, were they seen as the oppressors of, of um, these nations that they kind of had control over? Like where were the, um, 
the Jewish uh, kings that were put in place, where they kind of put in place because they were buddy-buddy with them, but then the Jewish people or the people of Palestine didn't necessarily like them, um, the leaders that they had. And is, is that kind mm -hmm. of the, um, the dynamic? Um, we've always got to be careful about making generalizations about any society. Within any society, you'll have some people who like the Romans and some people who don't like the Romans, you know, some people who like yeah. the current government, some people who are against it. And I think yeah. that, that case is, is definitely there in uh, Palestine under the Romans. There were certainly people who didn't like it. There were a number yeah. of uprisings, popular movements and so on of people explicitly uh, rejecting um, uh, 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 Roman uh, rule over the region. And we think that, um, you know, the Jesus movement was one of these uh, movements. And actually, um, leading up to, uh, uh, you know, sort of, um, sorry, a uh, couple of decades after the initial organizing of the Jesus movement, there's actually this major revolt against the Romans from uh, the Judeans. So in 66 CE, um, the, 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 the Jewish uh, aristocracy um, organized this uh, uh, revolt against Rome, um, this this full-on uh, revolt that, you know, the Romans it, then send in their legions and, and um, kind of suppress it. And it, the fighting goes on for a couple of years um, up to the point where in 70 CE, the Romans actually uh, destroy the Jewish temple. Um, and this is a, a really significant event in, in, you know, the history of both Judaism and actually early Christianity as well. I, I have heard that that's part of the prophecy that um, Jesus has has said to have fulfilled when he says that he, you know, Matthew 24, I, you know, you, mm. you'll not, not, no brick will be on top of itself and, and all that. Um, Most scholars would uh, say that the gospels were written um, after the destruction of the temple. So even if Jesus had predicted uh, it, and we do talk about this in the book as well, like I'm quite open to Jesus predicting that, you know, like, the idea that if you're speaking up against the powers that be, that they're going to come in and smash your most important uh, place, yeah, you know, yeah. like that, like that's a demonstration of the power. So it's quite it, you could easily predict something like that, or you could realistically predict something like that. So Jesus might have predicted it, and then the Gospels, particularly Matthew, you know, it's written after the after the fact that the temple's being destroyed. So they write it up in a way of. And Jesus predicted this, so this is prophecy fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, yeah. This is a random. This is kind of a random aside. But when Jesus was crucified, uh, di different gospels kind of tell it a little bit differently. But didn't the temple, the, the curtain in the temple, rip in two? And the I think if you watch the movie The Passion, everything's just you're destroying. You know, it's getting. Mm -hmm. Is that is that? Uh, did that happen historically? Like, was, was there a huge disturbance in the temple at the time, or is that something that's just? Um, we don't well, uh, no, I think it's that's something to, difficult that would be difficult to establish historically. It kind of comes from the the apocalyptic context of of what Jews thought these events were were, were, were a part of. So, mm -hmm. um, the the for the early uh, followers of Jesus, for the early Jesus movement, uh, Jesus's death on the cross, you know, signified the beginning of the end. This was the end times uh, happening here and now, and um, and and part of this is going to involve earthquakes and you know the the, the curtain of the temple uh, uh, tearing in two and and um, if you actually if you look at Matthew twenty seven there's a really interesting little uh, passage there about um, all these dead saints coming 
um, waking up oh, yeah. in their yeah. tombs and then going into Jerusalem and walking about. These are all parts part of the, the that kind of apocalyptic thinking that was that was mm. uh, really um, part and parcel of of uh, how the early Jesus movement were interpreting what was going on. Yeah. Is is and this is a random aside as well. I apologize. Um, I get inspired by the whiskey and it comes out of me. But the um, w- when you say apocalyptic preacher, I've heard um, professors like uh, Bart Ehrman um, mention that that um, that like apocalyptic preachers were like a dime a dozen. Like there were a lot going around at that time in first century Palestine. Is that kind of accurate? Is that true? Um, was was apocalyptic kind of preacher a like a, a like, is it kind of like how we see televangelists now? There's like a million, you know, a million of them. They all seem. To oh be right. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, is it like? Yeah. Uh, I, no, I think. I mean, yeah. Like apocalypticism as a kind of a worldview, where, um, um, or we call it millenarianism in, in our book, where, um, it was it was pretty common within Judaism. Not every, not all Jews believed it, but um, a number of Jews believed that. Uh, you know, they were living in, in the end times or close to the end times um, and uh, that uh, the, the, you know, the, the current age uh, was leading up to some dramatic cataclysmic event, uh, at which point uh, God would dramatically intervene and bring about a new age, a new, um, a new, a new kingdom, actually. And actually, I, I think it's really important to point out that apocalyptic thinking like this always went hand in hand with a challenge to uh, political power. So it was understanding their own political situation under the Romans, for example. Um, uh, But, you know, things are so bad or things, you know, from their perception aren't aren't going so well. So the only thing that could fix this is, is God coming in and dramatically shaking things up and then um, installing uh, a Jewish king like Jesus or something like that to inaugurate a new age, a new kingdom. And yeah, these ideas um, are, are really prevalent uh, within that time. We have lots and lots of apocalyptic texts in early Judaism um, mm-hmm. from around that time, which espouse uh, similar kinds of views uh, to what the early Jesus movement were doing. And we would say that, you know, this is part of the work of, of historical Jesus research is that we need to see the early Jesus movement in that context, in this context of different apocalyptic movements. Mm. Um, mm. So, yeah, so it's 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 uh, just just like this is what I mean by opening a can of worms. Like the context. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just putting, where do we go from here? Yeah. Where do we go? Yeah, just putting Jesus <laughs> in the context is like hard enough. Like it's like it's it's so big. Uh, and you you mentioned in the book, I'm not sure if it was in the book or if it was in the um in the mythicist uh, mythicist uh, myth vision episode. But you mentioned how um the, the, a lot of the you know the the people Jesus uh, the, a lot of the stories and the people Jesus calls are common people. They're fishermen. They're mm-hmm. um they're not like high-ranking officials and you know and and can you talk a little bit about that about about why you think i guess um uh why you think jesus came and spoke like why was it ordinary people rather than the rich uh and maybe you could touch on your um jesus uh your view on uh, jesus mission to the rich as well Mm -hmm. yeah we think that the, the the movement um even though uh and i'll i will talk about this i think it's the second part of your question in a little bit um that that the Jesus movement was intent on drawing in people from across class lines. 
it was it was certainly a, a movement that um, uh, wanted to uh, basically reverse the material hierarchies in Galilee and Judea. So those famous phrases about, uh, you know, uh, the first will be last and the last will be first. I think the Jesus, the Jesus movement meant oh. those, you know, to be understood like quite literally that in this not new like age, not this, spiritually, this not new, like no, no, in yeah. this new king. I mean, well, well, I think for them the spiritual and the material went hand in hand. Yeah, um, yeah. God was going to come in and and turn up this this situation where the the wealthy in uh, these cities, the wealthy who were responsible for these uh, building projects and benefiting from these building projects and Sepphoris and Tiberius and exploiting. Um, the ordinary fishermen and 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 farmers and, and villagers from the surrounding countryside, uh, God was going to come in and and uh, shake this all up, so that the first would be last, the last would be first. Uh, it seems like the Jesus movement, the early Jesus movement, had a lot to say about uh, you know the meek and and downtrodden kind of inheriting the earth, mm. and I think that they meant that quite quite literally that um, the the rich, the wealthy. Uh, those who were seen to be uh, exploiting the poor um, could expect God's judgment and God's wrath at the day at, at the day of judgment. Uh, and these are themes that come through really strongly through uh, the Gospels, particularly the first three, what's known as the Synoptic Gospels: Matthew, Mark, and and Luke. Um, yeah, yeah. Is your is I, your I, favorite? Go, go go for it. Yeah, I was going to ask: Is your favorite Gospel the Gospel of Matthew? Or is that just the one you've studied the most? What's your favorite I, I did my PhD thesis on the Gospel of Matthew, so I know it pretty well. I don't know if I have a favorite. Um, I, I think that they're all pretty interesting and useful for different for different reasons. Um, Matthew is is particularly interesting because uh, it is just so immersed in this apocalyptic and quite you know judgmental um, world, like. Uh, there is there is a judgment coming, and you you know you better be on the right side of history when this when this judgment comes, um, or <laughs> yeah. you will be you know thrown into eternity or whatever. Um, uh, it, so it, it is interesting to see how like the and you mentioned this a little bit, but it's interesting to see how the 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 kind of the 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 you can you can if you read Mark first, which you probably hold to Mark in priority, right? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, you read Mark and then you go all the way to John, you can kind of see themes develop, like get more like either extreme or like details are added. And, um, and you yep. can see that with yep. Je Jesus' resurrection, you know, the original Mark doesn't have a, well, it does have a resurrection story. It doesn't have the disciples. Account it has an empty tomb. Yeah. Jesus. Yep. yeah. It has yep. an empty tomb. Yeah. Um, it's, it was super, super interesting to me. Um, mm. but, yeah. uh, but just touching on, so what was, what do you think Jesus' mission to the rich were? And you asked mm, me to mm. ask that before we uh, we came on. Mm, mm, mm. So um, you know, we we suggest that in the book um, that rather than having a mission to the poor, as it's kind of commonly put, Jesus actually had a, a mission to the rich, uh, and this is actually our way of making sense of um, the the teachings in the Gospels when. Uh, Jesus actually appears to be talking to wealthier people, commanding them to give up their wealth or face judgment, uh, you know, <laughs> face wrath at the coming judgment. Right. So, um, uh, um, we and part of our argument here uh, looks at the word sinners. 
and the way that this word has actually been misinterpreted uh, through the Christian tradition. So within, um, we look at, you know, over a thousand years of Jewish texts of this word sinners, both, you know, in, in the, the Hebrew scriptures and other uh, Jewish texts. And there's a fairly consistent meaning of what this word sinners meant. Um, basically, it meant people who broke the law, lawbreakers, the Jewish law uh, within a Jewish context. So they were sinners. So um, uh, they had broken the law and so they reject God because they've broken the law. And in fact, sinners could be used to apply to uh, the nations outside of Israel because they they reject, they were, you know, from the Jews' perspective, they rejected the Jewish God, even if they never even heard about it or whatever. But, you know, so they're sinners, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. So that's yeah. The, the kind of meaning. Now, whenever, whenever the socioeconomic status of sinners is mentioned every single time, it's always in ref across all these Jewish texts, it's always in reference to exploitative rich people. So these are exploitative rich uh, Jews, primarily who, who are not abiding by some of the social justice uh, precepts in the Jewish law. Um, so wow, so so it's not yeah. so it's so very the common, easy. That common yeah that common mis misunderstanding or the common assumption that sinners in Jesus's time, like when it took, when the Gospels talk about Jesus having uh, meals with with uh, tax collectors and sinners. And there's this common idea that, you know, sinners were societal outcasts or downtrodden or something. And that's why mm. it's scandalous. That's why people were up in arms about Jesus having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. No, it's precisely because they're rich people, right? Jesus is having uh, meals with, with tax collectors and uh, wealthy sinners, <laughs> those responsible for some of these um, socioeconomic changes. And presumably based on a lot of the other uh, uh, teachings that um, uh, we find in the Gospels concerning wealth and and, and justice and so on. Uh, Jesus and the early Jesus movement were, were asking these rich sinners to give up their wealth or face terrible consequences at the day of judgment, which is going to be coming very soon. Um, wow, it's it's so easy to just like you know, it's so easy to read the Bible. And, you know, I used to do this when I was a youth pastor, read the Bible and I'm like, this was directed to me, like David McDonald, <laughs> you know, <laughs> living in. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think within the Christian tradition that that term um, changed because Christianity, although it starts as this uh, movement within Judaism. And so initially within the early Jesus movement, sinners would have been understood in this way. But by the time the, uh, the Jesus movement begins um, expanding and bringing on uh, non-Jews, it tends to take a broader meaning, you know, to, to, mm. to mean those who, um, because uh, the, uh, at least eventually, you know, the, the, the early church decided that non-Jewish followers of Jesus did not have to follow the law, but yeah. it could still talk about sinners, you know, so that, yeah. so words change meaning and, and within the Christian context, that word does, but of course we're, in our uh, book on the historical Jesus, we're interested in what the earliest uh, followers of Jesus and the early Jesus movement would have thought and understood by these terms and these 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 words. It, mm. it, yeah, and 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 it's and it is it, like I said, it's very deep, guys. If you want to get this book, please do. It is a beast. It's a beast of a book, and um, it's it's quite cheap on um, Amazon. So I'd go. Um, 
check it out for sure. Definitely um, grab a copy. It's a, a really, I, I highly recommend it. I'm going to go back through the book because I want to like, I, I, I had the, um, the the PDF version that you sent through and I've been uh, going through that, but a lot of it, it's like trying to find notes for this interview. I want to really go and soak back, soak back through this um, book. I really highly, highly recommend um, you read it. D just an example of, um, just an example of this is this is what I love to do with um, people who aren't from uh, Australia. But I could say a sentence to you that I guess no one would understand. I could say, uh, "Yeah, yeah, nah, uh, yeah, right. Listen, mate, let's grab Robbo before we go to the servo. Uh, we got to pick up some durries because the bottle doesn't have any Winnie Reds. Uh, uh, later, let's go do some doughies at Macca's car park. Fuck yeah!" And you probably know what's going on there. It yeah. Doesn't sound like a like the most. Uh, I mean, I don't. I mean, life. I think that like I don't know if anyone's <laughs> ever going to actually literally have that conversation. But no, um, <laughs> but it, it makes sense, and it sounds yeah, like yeah. a horrible night to be honest. Um, so that's basically saying let's go, let's go grab Robert, uh, let's go to the service station uh, to pick up some cigarettes um, uh, because they don't have the Winford Red uh, Reds at the bottle shop. The bottle shop, I guess, is um. Where you buy a liquor, uh, and then let's go to the car park at McDonald's and do some donuts, and then fuck yeah means that sounds good. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah. So I mean, even there, like that, that's just the you know we can understand that just like we could talk, yeah. you know, we could even say yeah yeah nah or nah nah yeah, and we'd understand what that means. And that's just in, in today's you know connected mm -hmm. world, and a lot of people wouldn't understand. So I, going I, back to right. I mean, it's, Palestine, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's a it's it's sort of a fundamental point about about language that um language you know it it it, it can only be understood it, it, in within its particular context right and hmm. um and depending on the context the the meaning of a of a word will change um but i and actually this this honestly this was one of the points of choosing this whiskey the gospel <laughs> yeah. Yeah. because because the thing is, is that if I say, hey, David, I want to share the gospel with you. <laughs> what do you think I mean? <laughs> yeah. What do you think I mean by that? Right. Like, and, yeah, exactly. and, and if I, you know, and if, if I wasn't showing you the bottle or something like that, like, you, you know, you could you could come away with a completely different meaning. But also it's interesting because this this term is not a term that was unique to the early Jesus movement at all. In fact, it already had um, a pre-existing uh, widespread association in the first century and if someone said to you in the first century in palestine hey i want to share the good news with you your immediate association with this would be oh was did the romans have a military victory somewhere or oh did the did the roman emperor give birth to an heir so this language of gospel was actually language that was associated primarily with um, wow. rome and roman imperial rule and the early Christians um, uh, uh, reappropriate this language and make it about Jesus, right? Wow. And also, when you that... bring in that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you bring in that political understanding as well, it's like, well, okay, what does that mean to say this is good news about Jesus, the Lord, who is bringing a kingdom? You know, this is like, this is a, a figure who, and a movement that are promising a, a, a kingdom that's going to replace the current powers of the day. It's going to replace Rome. Uh, it's going to replace Caesar. Um, and they're using Rome's own language about it. So the word Basileia, which gets translated as kingdom, kingdom of God, uh, is the same word in Greek that would be used to talk about the Roman Empire. 
Um, so, is, you know, some, some scholars have translated it as empire of God. Uh, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's just so it, it's very, I can't, I keep saying wild, but it really is wild to like, just to, just to try and even understand the context of this. Um, I wanted to ask you actually, um, you know, one thing that I'm kind of, um, learning about at the moment and I, and Derek kind of pointed this out with, um, uh, I think it's, um, uh, Dr. Dennis McDonald, he has a book um, talking about the similarities between some Greek myths and some stories written about Jesus. And we kind of went over, uh, you know, the, uh, the story of Odysseus and uh, and uh, and the um, the giant and, and and Jesus and the the pigs and and the um, uh, possessed person. So we have these stories that look like they could have been, you know, readapted from some Greek stories, like kind of tweaked a little bit. And you mentioned how the gospel is kind of tweaked a little bit. It's like, well, this is our version of it. Are there any, are there anything else that's like a real big standout that just kind of points that uh, to, because I know that Paul talks about some, he has some pagan he has some pagan sentences in some of his, some of his work. And he also has, um, there's also something that I found really interesting, which was, um, and I'm trying to find the original quote. Let me just read it out to you. Uh, the love of money is the mother city, metropolis of all evils. And it's by Byron of Boris, Boristhenus. Boris, by Boris. And that's like, you know, 400 years prior to Jesus, right? And I don't know if right. that's a faithful interpretation of a faithful translation of the Greek. I've been trying to learn, like look at the Greek all week to try and work out if it's actually like a faithful, because it's hard to find. Anyway, uh, the love of money is the mother city of all evils is very similar to, you know, the love of money is the root of all evils. So it's like, are there anything else in the New Testament that you go, wow, this is like straight out of Plato's thought, or this is straight out of um, Roman uh, concepts of X or anything like that? that I'm going to, I'm going to change, I'm going to change your question a bit. Cause I, I don't know if I, yeah. I want to, I want to answer it by reformulating or rephrasing the question. Yeah. I'm often asked was, and, and particularly this has happened a couple of times when I've been presenting on the book. Um, but what, you know, I get asked, but was, what did the historical Jesus do that was unique? Was there anything about the early Jesus movement <laughs> yeah. that was unique or unlike, you know, what anybody else was doing? And, um, and my answer inevitably frustrates um, <laughs> frustrates people, um, whether Christian or not, but it, because people are, are bound to this idea that, uh, you know, Jesus and the early Jesus movement must have been unique in some way, either, you know, they were the only like non-violent re resistance religious group or something, or they were, you know, or they, they're the only group that um, uh, promoted this idea the of resurrection of. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah. it, it's quite nonsensical um, from, a, from a historical point of view. I mean, we can say like everybody's unique, right? So to say that something or someone is unique is not in and of itself special. But also everybody shares things with other people and every group shares things with other people. And also the only way that we make sense of the world is by reference to what other people have said or other texts have written or what we've read or, you know, like we're always interpreting something in light of everything else anyway. And so for me, what makes the early Jesus movement unique is the specific um, the specific ways and, you know, the things that it has 
um, the, sorry, the specific combination of, of things that it has that it shares with everyone else. <laughs> so, um, okay. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's not, it, sh it shouldn't be surprising to any of us that it's like, you know, it, it borrowed ideas from there and here, and it was influenced by uh, Greek thought maybe, or, and especially, you know, Jewish apocalyptic and millenarian movements and thought, which, which we really push in the book. Um, it was reappropriating Roman imperial terms for its own theological and political purposes uh, and so on. And like, and it did that in its own sort of unique combination or its own way of drawing these different things together, which is exactly what any political movement through history or ever, any political or religious movement through history would do. It would say, oh yeah, we're drawing inspiration from these ideas. We're going to borrow that there and we're going to, put it together and come up with something novel or something new. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I understand that it's like, it's well, my, my next question, I guess yeah. is, 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 is why did the Jesus movement continue and, you know, Bob, the theological uh, apocalyptic preacher didn't and yeah, yeah you know um you know or john the baptist why didn't that why didn't they continue why didn't their missions continue why it didn't seems they, like they john followers... the baptist movement did actually continue for a while um, oh yeah, yeah that's right, and, that's and right. probably was more popular at the at the time of of the early jesus movement actually but yeah it it, it peters out you don't find too many uh, followers of john today i think there are still some groups but um <laughs> it's funny because you think that you think yeah, yeah. i always thought that 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 john's movement was the jesus movement I yeah. thought John kind of like was right. like, oh, now Jesus is the Son of God. Like yeah, yeah. Well, no, but I mean, the, the the Gospels are very much concerned with, um, you know, like appropriating John the Baptist for their own move for their own movement, like saying mm -hmm. that, well, yeah, he was in continuity with with our group. But it seems that there's probably a bit of rivalry or something. I don't know. They were similar yeah. sound. They were similar groups. We go into it a bit in in, in the book in terms of the details. Mm. Um. Wait, what, what, yeah, where were we going with this? What was your question again? The, is there any, the, uh, like, yeah. are, there, are there any standout um, things that are you like, that you're like, this is, this is like classic of, um, no, we've talked about like the gospels being reappropriated, but is there anything that's like standout? This is classic taken from the Romans or classic, or this is, this is oh, on the of face it. Like, of it. Like the word, you know, the word gospel, the idea of like pretty much everything that's claimed about Jesus being son of God, um, born of a virgin, uh, savior of the world, bringer of the good news, all of this stuff was language that was associated with the Roman emperor. So we think that, you know, Jesus was uh, setting himself up as, or the Jesus movement was setting Jesus up as this rival uh, imperial figure intent on bringing, you know, an empire that, that would uh, obliterate Roman imperial power over Palestine and, and, um, uh, you know, reappoint or uh, 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 rule it in, in the interests of of uh, the Jewish nation and the Jewish God. But that that because that's that's interesting, yeah. right? Because obviously the Gospels and everything was or everything that we where we get that information from is from the Gospels and Pauline epistles. But they weren't written until after Jesus had died and obviously didn't mm -hmm. come back. Did right. they believe that Jesus was coming back as an earthly like? overthrow of rome or do they or do they have more of a i guess a new wave christian idea of jesus coming back 
and everyone going up to heaven. Like, what did, how did they, how do you tie that together mm -hmm. with the idea that, you know, like, how mm -hmm. is he, if, if they're writing all this stuff down, like he's overthrowing the Romans and, and, you know, and kind of spinning it to be like, this is, you know, this is our guy. This is the, the Jewish kind of. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, gosh, that's, I mean, that is the question and it's a huge question. <laughs> so I'm just thinking about, about kind of how to, how to put it simply. Oh, Paul Samoa was going to come in. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Let me just have a drink. <laughs> just straight out of the bottle. Um, no, so I mean, we 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 have uh, other movements in, in first century um, Judea where they're very intent on actually, you know, like a, a violent military uprising to overthrow the temple or or, or the, the the power brokers of of uh, society or whatever. And we we talk a bit about some of those movements in the book. Um, the Jesus movement, uh, of course, you know, the the central figure dies, uh, is uh, kind of martyred for the cause, as it were, but. Um, we argue that the that the early Jesus movement interpreted this within their uh, apocalyptic context or their apocalyptic think thinking, and they thought that Jesus' death itself and especially his resurrection were testament to the fact that the Jewish God was uh, um, intervening in human history to bring about this this new kingdom on earth, which would be ruled by Jesus. So Jesus, who mm. you know had ascended to heaven, would be coming back to to uh, rule um, as Lord uh, this new divine kingdom on earth, um, uh, and it would be ruled, you know, in the interests of the Jewish God, and the Romans would be obliterated. And this this kind of apocalyptic thinking pervades a lot of the the New Testament, particularly the earliest writings. So all of Paul's letters, um, the, or you know, scholars are divided in terms of. Uh, which ones they deem authentic, but those which are universally deemed to to go back to the Apostle Paul, all have this very uh, apocalyptic um, outlook of this age ruled by Satan or Rome is on its way out. The rulers of this world, the rulers of this world, you know, had they known that they had crucified their Lord, Lord in glory, they didn't know, because what mm. happened was. The Jewish God, who's more powerful than than Rome, which is backed by its own Roman gods and, and theological uh, powers, um, this uh, Jewish God is coming into to, um, uh, intervening in human history and and bringing about this new reign of God on earth, and it's happening wow. right now. And we're and wow. so the early Christians believe that they're in this kind of transitional phase between. Um, you know, it's like the beginning of the end, or they're, they're in the midst of this transition to this new age. Now, because it doesn't happen, because God does, you know, Jesus doesn't actually come back, they were expecting it to happen imminently, as, as we kind of already mentioned, and already by the 50s, when Paul's writing his letters, it's late. Um, mm. They start to readjust and readapt some of these uh, ideas and beliefs. And so some of the later writings in the New Testament uh, are, are more concerned with setting up, I suppose, kind of church power structures to uh, enable the church to, um, you know, continue on intergenerationally. Um, mm. And the, the, you know, by the time of John's gospel, which, which uh, many scholars think was written last, the kingdom is suddenly not of this world. You know, it, it, yeah, yeah, kind of, that's what I mean by the theological something, ideas yeah, developed. It's not. Yeah. It sort of gets 
further and further displaced. But in the earliest texts, and particularly in Paul's authentic letters, this stuff is imminent. It's it's happening tomorrow or next week, or it should have already happened. Um, mm. You know, let's wow, uh, let's be prepared. Yeah, it's so uh, it's so wild because you, you even think about like you know Jesus coming back with the horns, and it's like you know. You know, the angels blowing the trumpets, you know, and it's like, you know, Rome's right. like, they, they hear the army coming. They're coming to take the, you know, Rome and to take the um, mm. the, the, mm. the nations back. And you even, like, it, like, it's, I'm losing my train of thought a little bit, but it's, it's, it's just so wild. Like, it's have, just have very, some more whiskey. I, I yeah, I think I need to have more whiskey, but, oh man, I lost my train of thought, but I really had a, I had an interesting, I had a, I had the question that was going to blow you away. You're going to be uh, mind blown away. By this question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably, probably. Oh yes, that's right. Uh, you know, you hear about like these end time, um, end time preachers now, like um, they'll, they'll sell everything. You know, there's that, there was that old book that was uh, 88 reasons why the, the end will come before 1988. And, you know, and they had like all these reasons and, um, and people, uh, you know, Bart Ehrman talks about this, like people sold the farm. He knew people who sold the, the parents sold the farm. Right. They got, they got rid of everything. And, What's interesting about these, you know, a bit of human psychology, not that I'm a psychologist or, or have any academic research there, but or, or we're not trained in that area. But what's interesting is the, the sunk cost fallacy, right? Where, where people, if they invest a lot into a certain worldview, they're less likely to kind of give it up and or to try and find a way to rework it, to reshift it, to change mm -hmm. it, to adapt it to whatever mm -hmm. new information. And what I can, all I can think of is, you know, the early church, according to Acts, they sold all their belongings and they piled together and gave it at the apostles' feet and said, do, you know, and you, you can just see how if they truly, if they started out truly believing, like let's, you know, the rich are bad, the poor are the ones, you know, the first will be last, last will be first. Let's give all our stuff to the apostles because we're going to be rewarded when this new kingdom comes in. Uh, and then the new kingdom doesn't come in. Well, let's twist the story. And then they, all of a sudden, they're the people who are starting these churches and are most involved because they have to be because it's so psychologically damaging for them to to admit like, oof, maybe this wasn't uh, all it's cracked up to be and we actually sold everything we we have and uh you know like it's it's that sunk cost if people if, you know if people or groups ever actually come to that full realization i mean i uh, you know as a as a historian and religious historian who studies this stuff i i tend to i tend to see people as acting sincerely i know that oh, yeah i yeah. know that there are grifters in the mix you know i like, like to happens. psychoanalyze people without yeah, any credentials yeah at all. but it's like I, yeah. I think like i i tend to think yeah that 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 they really sincerely believed it and and actually, I think that's what can cause the, you know, yeah, like the cognitive dissonance and the, okay, well, they're going to, they're going to keep hold to this, to this belief system. And okay, maybe we got some of the details wrong, but the general thing is correct, right? So they just sort of change mm. it, but they're doing this really sincerely, I, I, I think. Um, I, I don't think they're out to deceive uh, necessarily. Maybe some other, I don't know, but. Um, <laughs> oh, I don't think they're. I don't yeah, think they're. Yeah. I, I think it's like a. I don't. I didn't mean to say that. I thought they were being. I, no, sorry, and I wasn't. I wasn't. I was just yeah. um, clarifying for my I, own uh, point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I. I think it's. I think it's more of like because I've been there. Like I've been there where you all of a sudden you know you're in, you're involved in this like this ministry and you're like oh like I remember I remember being um, when I was kind of deconstructing my faith. Um, I read. I, I was like I'm going to read through the entire New Testament from start to finish, and I decided to to do that. And um, I got up to the scripture which says. Um, 
you know, women are not to speak in church or have authority over a man. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the apologetics of this, you know. And then I read on and it said, because women were to, because Eve was deceived first. This was the reason. And you're like, yeah, wait, that that reason still exists today. Like, but I think, right. I think women should be able to speak in church. I'm like, hang on. And then, you know, I asked someone at church and they said, um, oh, well, that was for a time. And, you know, we know this because like, who would, you know, who would want women not to be able to speak in church? Like, and they gave all these really weird reasons. And then I'm, and I said, so my, my gay friend who's like, you know, homosexual, like, oh, no, 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 that's a sin. That's definitely a sin. We know that's a sin. I'm like, oh, okay. But for me, that was a bit of a, you know, yeah, you yeah. kind of you kind of have to find ways to make things work when you're invested in something like that, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting, though, because I think even within, like, the New Testament itself, we see um, this kind of negotiating, negotiation going on. So... The, the a, a common perception, modern perception of, of the Bible and of the New Testament is that, it, you know, it's God's word. It speaks with one voice. But actually, we've got multiple voices and um, different perspectives kind of coming together within this canon. Right. And uh, in the New Testament in particular, in the early church, we can see I mean, you already mentioned it yourself in terms of the Gospels when you when you line them up. You can see development and embellishment, and in fact, each gospel author is is uh, addressing. You know, they might be addressing the the truth as they see it, but it's it's in light of the the circumstances of their current situation, or the people that they're they're writing to, or or the way in which they want to present the material, which may be quite different from someone else's context. Um, or you know they might have trouble with some of Jesus's teachings. So, for example, the um, the teaching Jesus's teaching on divorce uh, against divorce, um, which mm -hmm. we think you know is is really strong. There's a really strong likelihood that that went that has some proximity to the historical Jesus that that went back very early in the movement. I mean, even Paul, who doesn't give us much information about um, uh, the historical Jesus. Uh, already mentions this teaching about mm. Jesus's teaching against divorce. And then we find it in the gospels, but we see it being negotiated. Paul negotiates it. He says, you know, well, I, you know, I know what we've received from the Lord, but actually this is what I say. This is, this is my view, not the Lord's. Right. So he's already like saying, he's already forming this Where distinction between in first Corinthians. Is it chapter oh. seven or I, Oh, I won't look it up, but I'll, I'll look it up later. But um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Sorry, I don't have it on the top of my head, but um, yeah, that's that's okay. Um, um, yeah, so he 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 talks about Paul talks about like the the teachings that he's received from the Lord, by which he means Jesus, or not not that he's personally received from the Lord, but that um, the movement or you know the 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 Christians have have has come directly from the Lord, and then he talks about you know the, these this advice that I'm giving you is what I think, but it doesn't actually come from the Lord. So he says that a couple of yeah. times, I think. And and he's doing exactly this kind of negotiation. I think there in quite an honest way. <laughs> he's saying, I'm not going to change what Jesus said to suit myself. I'm just going to say, well, Jesus said this, but actually I think, you know, we've got to, there's, it's a bit different now or this, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, then yeah. Like, even the gospel, the gospel authors change this teaching as well. So Mark has uh, Jesus prohibit uh um, adultery, uh, when he's asked about this, you know, um, he just prohibits adult, uh, sorry, he prohibits divorce, right? He prohibits divorce. And then, um, uh, in Matthew, 
Matthew kind of changes it a bit. And he says, uh, you can um, divorce your wife in cases of, uh, it's sometimes uh, translated as unchastity, right? Yeah, like um, sexual the, the Greek, yeah, the, the Greek word there is porneia, which has quite a broader meaning to do with like sexual morality. It could refer to a whole host of things, not necessarily unchastity. I don't even know what that means really. But um, the, the point that I'm making is that Matthew actually adds a condition in which it's okay to divorce your wife. Whereas for Mark, Mark's version of that teaching, like it's just prohibited. Like it's black mm. and white. There's no, there's no give or take. So we yeah. can already see early on the tradition, um, the developing tradition, like negotiating and renegotiating uh, these different rules because, you know, it's, it's having to survive and adapt within a changing environment. And, and you can see the, you can see the issues and the problems with that. Um, in, in regards to formulating, like, I guess, a religion um, or a doctrine, because, um, and this is me once again, and I, I want to get, I'm, I'm saying this because I want to get your perspective on this, might be out of your realm of expertise, but because I'm not an expert, I'm happy to give my opinion. <laughs> no, but but you see this all through, you know, you, you've got these different stories about Jesus and they kind of, some of them, they mostly line up, but some of them don't and they develop and there's different theological perspectives. I think there's like 45,000 denominations of Christianity, if you take a very loose term of what the denomination means. Um, but if you, but you get, you know, to 615 AD or, or, um, or CE, whatever you call it, and, uh, and Islam is forming. And you can see, you know, they know, obviously know of the Bible and then and then your big thing in Islam is that the Bible's been corrupted. And you can see that they're very, if you read the Quran, it's very, it's like, this is the direct, like, this will never be changed. Right. This is the exact words of God. This is like, this, like, I didn't have anything to do with this. I can't even read or write. I think Muhammad said, he's like, this is exactly what God said. Like the words of God. And uh, you can see how like, to me, it looks like as if it's a it's a solve for that problem. It's like let's create our own religion. Right. It's uh, it's and, direct revelation. It's like direct revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, it, you're right in the sense that we're stepping outside of my area of expertise, so I don't want to talk authoritatively <laughs> about it. But from what I understand, I think that that's exactly the case. That yeah, um, that the yeah the Quran like is is purporting to be this kind of direct revelation, in a mm. way that I think I think that the the New Testament and the the Bible becomes that. But it wasn't that. It it, it wasn't yeah, that. Yeah, it was canonized. You know, it's like, like yeah. it, it, I mean, I don't even know if it becomes that. I think that certain Christians have claimed that of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I think even that, you know, has has changed over time about what the Bible actually is. And then, biblical scholars like myself and and historical critics have have gone back and and you know like gone through the texts with a fine tooth comb and actually said, well, look, you can we can see that these clearly like have different perspectives and views and have emerged from different historical contexts. Yeah. I, and, I, I don't, uh, and I don't, I don't know anything really about like the historical criticism of the Quran. So I just assume that similar conversations have happened or may be happening there. I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to send all my Muslim apologists to come and um, abuse no. them in the comments. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> um this man knows nothing um so uh so i got just to be respectful of your time um i want to um jump on some q a if anyone's got any questions um, that'd be great uh i've got a few questions i've written down um what are the implications of your research regarding the shaping of modern christianity
Do you want to say a bit more about what you're what you mean? I'm not sure. Yeah. How so, to that. so so um, like, is there like, let's say someone absorbs the message of your book, like some sort of a Neo in the Matrix zaps it into their brain. How does that change their perspective of 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 the shaping of modern Christianity? Like, do, do, are, they, are they going to walk away? Like, give it, give us the. If someone doesn't want to buy your fantastic book, which, which everyone should go, what message are they going to walk away with when they kind of read? read this and like what what revelation will they better understand uh would i just use the word revelation like a but yes, uh, <laughs> yeah what will, what will be revealed through the book yeah what will be revealed um, yeah 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 I think, I think i think a couple of things the first is that the world in which um the historical jesus is situated and the early jesus movement emerged is so radically different from our own world you know mm. like and in order to properly understand it, we we have to immerse ourselves as best we can in that world and realize that it's going to look strange to us, that it's not necessarily going to um, uh, align with everything that we we may think um, uh, Jesus was or is or, or what have you. I think especially, you know, the Christianity today in a contemporary sense developed out of this, but over a process of 2000 years through a whole host of longer historical processes. So um, uh, there are some surprises there and that shouldn't be surprising, but you know, they, they can be as I think, you know, has, has occurred to you through this part of this conversation. Um, when I leave a review, I'll write that. Unsurprisingly, there are <laughs> yeah. some surprises. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, like, it, do you, but do you get what I mean? It's kind of like, yeah, there are some surprises and then you're like, why am I surprised by this? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Course, like, like, yeah. That's what I mean. It's like, yeah, yeah. This is like this early Jesus movement was immersed in this entirely different um, socioeconomic context, this agrarian world, um, and you know they were thoroughly immersed in this apocalyptic uh, Jewish thought that is pretty much completely alien to how many of us think and operate today. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like you know, like, yeah, they didn't see the world as we do. But interestingly, the so the other point, this is the other part of my answer to your question, is that is that this crazy apocalyptic movement from the first century, you know, went on to influence the world religion, which also, you know, politically through history has um, been uh, has been drawn on for inspiration for both kind of revolutionary movements revolutionary political movements and social change, but also reactionary ones and imperialistic ones. And why is that? And, and I think that that's something that we really get to that at the, at the kind of the core or the heart of the early Jesus movement was this ambiguous use of um, and renegotiation of political and, and imperial power that was both, you know, a critique of the Roman Empire and a critique of imperial power, but the, the early Jesus movement was also thinking imperialistically. We want to replace the Roman Empire with God's empire or God's kingdom, yeah. with Jesus as Lord. And, you know, and this is good news. And, and, um, and so that kind of ambivalence at the, at the heart of Christianity has kind of played out over 2,000 years of uh, it's inspired, you know, both movements for social change 
um, who draw explicitly and implicitly on the teachings of Jesus and on of the early Jesus movement in the New Testament, but equally, right, by like reactionary, right wing, uh, or even, you know, even thinking in terms of where we started in terms of the colonization of um, Australia and other places, like, it was the it was the colonists who bought the Bible here as part of this enabling thing to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, as Jesus says to the disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, right? Like, go out and bring the good news to the nations, right? Like, like th that imperial project of colonization was itself in part justified by reference to what was happening or what was recorded two thousand years ago in this in this text. This is so. I could. I could sit here. I could finish a whole bottle and, and listen to you talk about this. This is. I think um, you have, haven't you? Didn't you? Have you <laughs> well, I guess. I guess technically, <laughs> you did ask me. To, you did ask me to get the bottle, and I have been reading your book and drinking it at the same time. Um, so just, just. I got some more questions, but I just wanted to shout out um, your book once again. Make sure, guys, check out the book. It's amazing. And coming up on Deep Drinks, we have Joe Schmidt from Majesty of Reason. We're going to be talking about rationality and stuff like that. That's going to be really cool. And then we have uh, we have Neil coming back on. Isaiah 53 is not about Jesus is the um, clickbaity title that I use there. But we're going to be talking about Isaiah 53. Uh, and then we have um, Ali Hardy, who was in the documentary um, Hillsong Omega Church Exposed. And she um, wrote the book um called beyond belief which is about pentecostal christianity so and she does a deep dive into like pentecostal christianity which is really cool because i came from pentecostal um christianity so it'll be really cool to talk about that. and then we have a few christians coming on a christian apologist which would be really cool uh, um to talk about the existence of god so that's going to be awesome so make sure you subscribe like send this to your fundamentalist auntie and let's all have a good time <laughs> um so the next question is are there any um any aspects of Jesus' life or the movement that you wish you could have spent more time on or or gone into in your book, but you you kind of didn't have it, it didn't kind of lend itself to it in its current context, um, or anything you'd you want to do more additional research on uh, in the future? Um, yeah, so much at the moment. I'm I'm <laughs> looking more into um, the the fishing communities that were at the heart of the early Jesus movement. So, you know, Jesus's first four disciples that he calls on the Sea of Galilee, on the foreshore of the Sea of Galilee, are famously, you know, these fishermen brothers. And mm. uh, I'm, I, so I'm currently doing more research into the, the social and economic uh, uh, conditions of, of and, um, you know, experiences that they would have had, which would have uh, driven them to, to join this apocalyptic movement. And also, you know, to think about how the how their influence would have shaped the, the the movement in certain ways i mean you know like you look through the gospels again and there's there's all the stuff about fishing there's all these miracles about fishing um uh and my question is well why is that you know um going going beyond the kind of um fishes of men and yeah yeah like going beyond the kind of like uh uh jesus did fishing miracles because like the fishermen liked it or something like that. But to actually think about like, okay, so if with the building of the city Tiberius on the seashore, like it kind of means that better connected elites are able to dominate the Sea of Galilee. It's like having this economic impact on the whole Sea of Galilee. How is that affecting small fishermen in 
villages like Capernaum, who just had this kind of like small little fishing collective or whatever of a couple of brothers, you know, like, like, it seems like the, the these, some of these economic changes and upheavals that I've been talking about, um, we can talk about those with specific reference to fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Um, mm -hmm. And so that that's, that's one of the, the areas that I'm looking at at the moment. James and I, uh, my co-author James and I have have teased with this idea of maybe doing a sequel to this book, depending on on a how it goes. Trip to Israel is what Not, I'm saying. Yeah, well, a sequel to the a sequel to the <laughs> Jesus: A Life and Class Conflict book. So yeah, more of a you know like the production of early Christianity or how did it how did it go from basically what comes after the early Jesus movement? Mm. How does it go from this um, this apocalyptic uh, early apocalyptic movement to uh, 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 the religion of empire by the fourth century. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we'll that, do that. I'm not sure. That 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 sounds extremely interesting. And before we went live, Robert actually promised me that in one of the books there's a golden ticket to go fishing with James and Robert over in the Sea of Galilee. So if you get the book, you could win the golden ticket. I'm just kidding. But wouldn't that be funny? Wouldn't that be I great? Wish. If, I if wish. That? That'd be um, cool. I hope I, I get the golden ticket. Because <laughs> yeah. I want to do that. <laughs> I did have like a, and the whiskey is obviously affecting me now. But I had this, um, I had this, this actual, this thought uh, on the way uh, to work this morning when I was, I was listening to um, the interview. I was like, man, evolution, like the, the science of evolution, like fish, you know, fish would evolve at a very slow rate. The Sea of Galilee is quite is closed, right? The fish that were taken from the Sea of Galilee, like that Jesus would have had a part of, he, surely he would have eaten some of those fish. So technically, like we could actually work out how genetically similar we could we could go to that we could go and catch fish and be like, we're eating a fish that's like ninety nine point eight percent similar to the very fish that Jesus would have eaten at the time. Like that's a that's a wild wild concept to me that you're eating the great 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 cousin of a fish that jesus True. ate like that's you gotta you, you gotta be careful because i think that the sea galley has a number of uh new species that have been introduced since the, oh. since the time of jesus but there are some that yeah. persist there's one that's called like its common name is saint peter's fish because precisely because it's <laughs> that's one of the native the, the fish five thousand i wonder if lake, you like but, you bring one up and yeah. then like it just splits yeah. into five thousand or yeah um Cool. So, uh, and um, I got I got a couple of unserious questions. We will finish up with, um, soon, but but one last serious question is: Can you recommend any books or resources to readers interested in learning more about the historical Jesus, other than your book, um, Early Christianity and the I was going to say our book, First Century <laughs> Palestine. Your book is the is the go to. But let's say if someone was like, "I love it. I've loved the book. It's awesome, uh, and I want to learn more." other like textbooks that you like where do you get your information from are you in the sands of galilee pulling out these uh manuscripts or like how are you getting this information I, yeah right i mean we're, we're getting the information because we're you know we're academics and we've we're reading mm -hmm. all the scholarly treaties within the within the field and we're looking at like primary sources and primary texts and so on um in terms of where to start like if if you are a beginner uh honestly like bar ehrman's um books are a pretty good start you know like it's somewhere to start and then so in my in my um i teach a, a class called uh you know new testament in its world and uh for a number of years i've used Bart's book his textbook um the new testament a historical something introduction uh, yeah, yeah yeah and it's and on my that, wish list 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite. I think it's quite expensive, but it's it a is. beautiful book. It's got like full color images and all, you know, and and I think it's just very accessible and it's a good place to start. It's got good bibliographies that um, that point you to other stuff. Um, it's not like the final word because any scholarship is never the final word, right? Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, I mean that would be one one recommendation if you if you're really interested in like the social context stuff and the and the class struggle stuff then uh i can point to my other book um it's an edited uh volume it's 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 a bit more academic than uh you know so it's not really for the beginner beginner but someone who's who's done a bit of research into this and wants to find out more uh it's called class struggle in the new testament um i've just found it yep i um, had no idea that you were you published a bunch of other books there we go. Wow. So that one, oh. you know, is is another is another place to look. Um, so that's where I, I reached out to uh, a number of of leading scholars um, of uh, the New Testament uh, who were looking at aspects of class and class struggle, and and they they offer their their insights. Um, as I say, that that book is 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 more like academic the the yeah. jesus a life and con uh, class conflict is um really i i would hope of interest to like a wide range of people um yeah you know including non-specialists um it's not it, it's not that like uh, i think as you said like it's it's still pretty dense like it's there's a lot of material packed in there but we've written it in it, a way that is accessible to the non-specialist yeah, a hundred percent, and I would I would totally um, stand by that. Um, I'd love you guys to do an audible version or something sometime. That would be awesome because mm. I think it's um, it's it's up there with um, many of the the popular Jesus. If this was a Bart Ehrman book, I'd be like, yep, this fits right in with like that level of mm. um, quality. Mm. It's really good. Mm. I love it. Mm. Um, okay, last couple of silly questions, and I ask I ask this um, I ask I ask this question of a lot of people. And um, and take take some time to think about it. Have a drink of whiskey. But uh, what is the most tr plausibly true religion that you don't believe in? <laughs> Such a good question. Such a dumb question. <laughs> it's great, right? Because atheists and theists can answer it, right? Like. There's a trend. Though, I will tell you Catholicism. That. Catholicism. Interesting. Why is why Catholicism? It's got good tradition. <laughs> it's got cool hats. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. They dress you're up the well. first. Um, you're the first Catholicism with that. I, I. I. You know. I mean. It's probably like a different part of your brain. Like you probably don't look at these yeah. things more as like. Uh, in, from like an epistemological, epistemological I, like framework, you kind of look no, at it like a you know, you know. I, I can give a, I no, and I I've never thought about this, but I can actually give like a, a a pretty serious answer. I think coming back to exactly what we we're talking about right at the beginning with um, the Aboriginal stuff in Australia, and um, I find like Aboriginal spirituality really interesting, right? Like they've got this what what we understand as this kind of mythology but it was this belief system about the world and and like the dreaming and how everything kind of emerged from this dreaming time back in in sort of prehistory and and that everything is interconnected and but you know and 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 there are also 
like uh, specific iterations of this more broad concept. So the Noongar story and, and, and so on. Like it endured for tens of thousands of years, as far as mm. we know. Like it's it's it, it was a, a a spirituality or a religion, if we want to call it that, a way of life that was has been way more successful and enduring than any other in human history mm. that we know of. Um, there's something to admire about that, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's my serious. That's actually point. that's actually good. That's actually a good point because it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. they don't have anything written down, which is I guess there's nothing to screw no it was passed it was passed on yeah um, orally yeah 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 Yeah. interesting well um but but you know it it enabled them to to like really successfully navigate their world and their environment as well which is why it was successful it it had explanatory power why are way the things they are why why are the why are things the way they are um you from a historic from a historical perspective and this is this is now me just moving into things that i want to hear um, apologies audience uh, you can leave now no um but but do you how do you view religion as a regard like forgetting about whatever personal beliefs you might have how do you view religion do you view it as like history's like humanity's first attempt at trying to organize society and un- understand the cosmos or our place in the universe or like do you view it as like um a psychological phenomenon like how do you view religion as a whole like not just talking about christianity but like why do cultures have religion yeah i this is a it's a really great and it's a big question um religion is not a thing it's a it's a scholarly construct it's a way of Mm. you know it's it's something it's a name that we've given to um in modern times a certain subset of human experience um, it seems to be a part of people's culture, and it's only sort of in the time in modern society where where, we've, where we claim that we're not religious, or you know, like we've moved beyond religion or what have you, that we actually talk about it as Have-a-way a thing that's it. separate yeah. from the rest of culture. So, I mean, that's that's the lead into my answer, which is that it's it's just a part of culture. Um, uh, in terms of definitions, my definition of religion would be a working or pragmatic definition. It's what we normally um, uh, mean when we talk about religion in the modern world. Mm. It's a kind of circular definition, but it's, you know, we're talking about kind of supernatural or mythological ways of understanding the world and so on and so forth, often um, uh, associated with certain rituals and, and practices. Um but it could be much broader than that. And I think as a as a historian, what I'm especially interested in is not bracketing off religion from everything else, because that's mm. something that we do in the modern world, but throughout human history and in pretty much every other society other than ours, religion is not this separate thing that is like sits in a box over here and you opt in or you opt out. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it intersects with politics, economics, uh um culture social relations everything everything um uh, yeah goes well, together. That's, that's a brilliant thought because there's a brilliant way you put that because like you could see like in the future someone could see a lot of our 
what we take for granted is like non-religious like we're um uh, i don't know caring about the environment um uh superstitions um the way we interact Attend, with each uh, other. you know attending sports matches attending sports that, yeah exactly like so, sociologists have written about this that you know they study these things really? and they say yeah 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 and they say look like the the the, the boundaries that we have in terms of what is considered religious and non-religious are changing, they're socially constructed. Um, mm. uh, you know, we like, it, it pretty much depends on how you define religion. And, and you know, there are things that we would, there are like, say, there are world religions that don't necessarily involve belief in a supernatural deity, right? Like Buddhism mm. doesn't necessarily, Buddhism, yeah. so... So like, so you can't just say, "Oh, religion requires gods," <laughs> or mm. like it—it's it, not that simple. It's—it's it's a really notoriously difficult concept to define. Well, okay, I'm going to ask you something um, that's going to piss off all the atheists. They're going to not buy your book now. Hopefully, they bought your book already. But nah, yeah, off, go buy the book the and, then, and then right <laughs> yeah. now, just um, like, would yeah. you? Could you say that? Would you say that? science as we see as 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 how some people engage with us today when i say science i mean pop science i'm talking about the scientific method i'm talking about um science as a symbol as a construct could be considered religious well anything could be considered religious but yeah, <laughs> yeah. um like you you hear a lot of times people will go i don't believe in your god i believe in science and it's like what are yeah, you, yeah, what are you yeah. even saying there right. what are you saying right there? like i'm yeah. on team scientific method i, I like the scientific method i think yeah, it's yeah, the best yeah. tool we have for investigating oh i think world. me too I, I mean i think that it's yeah i think that the scientific method is a way of you know um establishing what is true and and and, and so on is a is a <laughs> but pretty even good there, method so like Someone yeah. could take that that word and go. Well, he thought that gravity was X, but actually, we've discovered that gravity is blueberry bloob. And he was making a religious statement there. Like someone could take that clip there of you saying it's it's how we find out what's actually true. And like it's it's um it's just it's it, saying yes to that question will annoy a lot of people because that's of that's a, a talking point of the apologists that um, science is just another religion that the that atheists and agnostics have just jumped onto. I, I don't think that's actually the case. Like from but I think I, I just that feel some, like it's way more yeah. complicated than that, right? Like, you know, I mean, yeah, we can talk about science as and the scientific method as a belief system. And it certainly is in some way, you know, it's based on certain assumptions about reality and it it focuses on the natural world and like natural explanations for things, sure. Um but I just feel like it's a bit more complicated than that. And also, you yeah. know, in the in the wake of the scientific revolution, you can't just say, oh, well, actually, I'm not going to believe in that. Because, like, <laughs> well, okay, mate, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, put yeah. down your cell phone, like, stop watching TV and um, go, yeah. go and, like, hunt for your own dinner because we are entirely, like, immersed and yeah. implicated in this world, you know, um, <laughs> and benefiting not, from it. Like, yeah, I think it was, but, it, but it, think, yeah, but like, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that you have to believe everything hook, line and sinker. Like, I mean, that, this is part of, I think a benefit of the scientific method that from that system is that it allows you to, I think in an intelligent way, like adapt and modify 
your beliefs mm. based on new experience or, uh, you know, argumentation, right? So if new evidence comes along, you can you can say, okay, well, I used to think this and now I think that. The evidence points in this direction rather than that direction. And you haven't, like, obliterated the scientific method. <laughs> it's yeah. quite robust in that way. Yeah, like, the scientific method is, like, it's what's the, well now we're sounding it's, like um we're, we're, we're evangelizing our belief system <laughs> but you i know what you're saying like it's um it's its own like the scientific method is separate to science i'm more talking about the way that people engage right. with the concept of science um i don't even have the vocabulary to describe what i'm trying to say and probably the whiskey isn't helping but i think i'm on the same page as you it's it's um yeah it's 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 just it's it, it is very interesting for me i don't know where we come from like the universe. I don't know any of that stuff. To me, it's all one big adventure. We're trying to find those answers. It's very exciting. Um, mm. But it's also when you think about it, you're like, damn, this is there's some, a lot of weird stuff going on. There's like how societies are formed and how you know, um, you know like, back to what you're saying too before about um, about science. It's like you shouldn't really ask the question. You, sh you shouldn't really ask the question. Do you believe in science or do you believe in evolution? I've heard some people say you shouldn't even ask the question, do you believe in evolution or subscribe to evolution or the germ theory of disease? You should say, do you understand it? Because it's not something that you right. can just like opt yeah. in and opt out of. I mean, some people will make you think that you can, but but um No, yeah. I think I think that's right. I think that the 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 kind of the apologist so I I mean I don't yeah, I don't have much um uh background or or too much exposed exposure to this kind of like <laughs> fundamental like fundamentalism and, and and that sort of stuff oh you'd have a blast I, I clash with it occasionally but it, it, it's not something that i spend a great deal of time thinking about but because <laughs> and precisely because it seems to like just completely misunderstand you know i'll send some apologists your way to just no, tell you where you're wrong just, <laughs> oh. you've got to get into that <laughs> it just seems like a massive distraction to me from like do, doing do you know, the kinds of things that i want to do which is like okay what you know let's have a look yeah, at it really is and what they were up to and what they were thinking and, blah, blah, blah. and it's like and, and actually this is where the whole like mythicist versus apologist debate uh -oh, on the yeah. historical jesus well i i, I just it, it's we've I had so much drama it, on that on, on yeah this and it's just like well, lately, yeah. okay cool like that's cool you guys can have your discussion <laughs> But like, I'm not out to prove, you yeah. know, like one way or the other. It, it sort of, yeah, history, it doesn't yeah. really mean much to me, one way or the other. Like yeah. in terms of the specifics of of, of, of these things, I, I think that I'm right in terms of what we argue in the book, obviously. Yeah. But I, I think that because like I've been following the evidence and 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 mm. it's but but like equally, you know, we're not out to prove a case. We're we're open to changing our mind in light of new evidence and so on. And it just seems to me that that apologetics, um, it's already it's already well, decided on its truth, right? And yeah, yeah, it's it's not it's yeah. it's its job is not to find truth or to tell the truth. It's to defend what they already can. Like it means to defend. In, 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 a, in a pop understanding. I mean, I know that there yeah. are more sophisticated understandings of pop. Oh, of course, yeah. But yeah. Of course. Yeah. There's uh, Dr. Josh fell into that same. You don't, do you know who Dr. Josh Bowen is? No. 
I don't oh, he's uh, he's an amazing guy, a good friend of mine. He um, he's written a book, you know, um, does the Old Testament endorse slavery? And his his whole I think thing I may have like, heard of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, and he's written a bunch of other books. It's really cool. And we did a slavery panel. We had you know, he's he's like the go to guy for um, slavery mm-hmm. stuff. But he he kind of just tried to engage in into the in the fields in from an academic standpoint. He's an Assyriologist. He's got master's degrees in biblical studies and things like that as well. And you just try to engage, but then all of a sudden people are like, no, the, you know, like that my apologist says otherwise. And then he's all of a sudden he's in these, comp- he's in these debates, just like doing like Bible yeah. 101 kind of stuff with these people who like just, and, and, and he gets a lot of hate for it. And he's it's and it's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Well, I, I, so I found I'm going to, I'm going to advocate yeah. that people do that to you. I'm going to send them your way. No, no, no. I you mean, I, so I, like, I, as I, as I indicated, I've, this has kind of come up in terms of the Jesus uniqueness thing, but the, and it's like, the, with, oh yeah yeah yeah, unique, yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. historical jesus unique yeah. and it's it's kind of it's sort of like well if you actually know what the his, like what historical jesus research is or what historical research is yeah you can't like you can't say that anything is unique like everything is unique and it isn't but like yeah. our way of doing historical research is to put it in its context so how do you yeah. you can't be like it was unlike anything in its context well how do you know that do you know everything yeah. about everything in the past yeah like, you know we're, we're, <laughs> like we don't you know deep, deep drinks will soon be selling some t-shirts that says uh jesus isn't unique uh dr robert uh, miles uh, with your face on it uh all right and then your all twitter right. account no i'm kidding um i mean i actually so i already sell that t-shirt <laughs> oh do you really do you really no I'm no kidding. but it's a good <laughs> idea i wish i i wish i'd come up with it the the uh i i should have mentioned you you got a um yeah, uh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't mention because you said don't mention it, but I'm going to mention it anyway. You um, you had a, uh, and I'm only going to mention it for one reason. Um, this is because I love your shirt. You have a website people can go check out, <laughs> and your shirt's so good. I'll prefer not to. <laughs> but uh, that's such a great shirt. I loved. That's the first image I saw when I looked you up when I got in contact with you. I was like that. I like this guy. Uh, guys, check out the <laughs> website. Check out the book. It's been amazing talking to you. Um, I'd love to have you on Thanks again. So um, yeah. And it's been you know fantastic. I'm mean, gonna continue drinking rye whiskey for the rest of the night. And uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's been awesome Absolutely. having you on. Is there anything else you'd want to say before we leave? No, just thank you so much for having me on. It's it's been a pleasure. Ah, thank you. All right, I'll see you later. See you everyone in a couple of days for uh, Majesty of Reason. Bye.